Typically on a Monday, Thursday uh, service, uh, we focus on uh, service. That's what Monday means. And it usually refers to what we find in uh, John 13. Uh, but here at Desert Springs, we haven't gotten to John 13 yet. Uh, we're still in John 11. So uh, what I'm doing is really the, the larger picture of Christ's service for us is his humiliation from incarnation to his exaltation. And so uh, we're kind of jumping, well, not jumping, but we're in the middle of that uh, as he's moving towards uh, his own sort of the nadir of his humiliation upon the cross. Um, but now we are by the tomb of Lazarus. So John 11, um, actually it's 34 and 35, but no one's counting, right? Okay. Oh, actually, I want to do 33. When Jesus saw her, referring to Mary, weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, that you have recorded this for us. And that this is the only place we find this, which in some ways is odd to me, but good to you. Send your spirit. Help us to understand why it is uh, the one who has loved us with such a love, who gave his all for us, uh, was deeply troubled and wept. That we might appreciate more, understand better that which he did for us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Death is never an easy subject to talk about, and it's never an easy process to be engaged in, uh, whether it's you or whether it is someone else. And as a pastor, we're often with people through that process. Um, I've had officers die of cancer, and it's sort of a long, drawn-out thing, and then there are people that die rather quickly. All sorts of emotions sort of hit you when you know this is coming. This past week, well, not this week, last week, had one of those moments. I had been to the hospital already and uh, was uh, hunkered down trying to get some sermon stuff done when the text came in that George had coded. Sent a quick message, I'll be right there not knowing what I will find, of course. And there was fear. There was also anger. I had a lot of things running through me as I faced the death, of, or possible death, of someone I loved and cared for. That's part of what this is about, in a sense. That's not all it is. It's so much more. The big idea this evening is that the second Adam has a visceral responses, or rather has visceral responses, to all that the first Adam has wrought. Now, how's that for a mouthful? Okay. 
But here's what I want you to get. He's having visceral responses precisely because of what the first Adam has brought to humanity. But he is the second Adam is going to rectify it. He's going to fix what the first Adam has seemingly irretrievably broken. We only have two points because it's a homily. <laughs> I know you're, why you're laughing, because my last sermon was two points and it lasted over 40, well, I don't know how long it lasted, <laughs> but it was not a homily to say the least. But I'm going to try and keep it into the range of the homily this evening. And the first point is of this is that Jesus responds to sin and death with anger. Let's recap very briefly. Jesus, of course, is in Bethany, which is less than two miles away from Jerusalem. You know, it's on the Mount of Olives. He is there precisely because Lazarus, whom he loved, has died. Jesus has come to Bethany despite the danger presented to him by the Jews whom last time he was in Jerusalem had tried to stone him. Jesus has already spoken with Martha, revealing to the fact that he is the resurrection and the life, and there's a degree to which she got that, and as we'll see Sunday, there's a degree to which she didn't get that. Hopefully we've got that. Enough, anyway. Then Mar Mary comes and falls up at his feet. And Jesus does not say anything yet. Now, we have she weeping loudly, and that's really the word that is there, and that's used for her, and it's also used for the mourners who are there. And we talked a little bit about that, uh, is that usually you are required to have paid mourners. And we noted how that would be an interesting job to have, not one that I would want. I'm not very good at it. You know, I stink at mourning, so I would not get any of those, any of those jobs. But they're wailing. They're, you know, at least Mary, it's, it's genuine, it's authentic. She loved her brother, and she's beset with loss. And she's not, she's not quietly crying in a corner. You could hear her down the street. That is the effect of the word that is used for the weeping of Mary and the mourners. Wailing. Precisely because they think it's all over for Lazarus. They don't realize that Jesus has said that he's coming now to wake Lazarus up. And even the disciples didn't get that. Because if we remember Thomas, Peter must have been busy with something else. Because Thomas butts in, of course, and says, let's go to Jerusalem to die. Jesus, it says, was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Almost every translation puts it that way. That is incredibly vague to me. Is it vague to you? It really does, it seems to rob the word of its meaning. Now, this is a word, these are words that are not found much in Scripture except right here. Okay? but they're found in extra-biblical writings. And all the commentators agree on the basis of those, ex those extra-biblical writings that Jesus is angry. The word there about being disturbed in the Spirit is one that is used often for the snorting horse, the angrily snorting horse. 
Think of it more instead, maybe in a different sense, to get that anger aspect, the snorting bull getting ready to charge. That's what Jesus does. That is how Jesus is responding. That's why I say it's a visceral sort of response on the part of Jesus. In his commentary on this, Calvin notes that Jesus is like a champion who is preparing for a contest. When I was younger, I used to watch wrestling. Hulk Hogan getting ready for a contest. You know, flexing all the muscles and doing his thing and ripping off the shirt. That's kind of the idea that we want, unfortunately, I think, to get in our minds. Okay? Maybe not the shirt ripping. But we want to get the idea that Jesus is preparing for a showdown. That there's something greater here than merely Jesus is coming to a funeral and he's going to cry. Jesus is preparing for spiritual warfare. This is not a party trick. He's getting ready to tangle with sin and death. It struck one that he loved. And he's going to strike back. But even beyond this, Jesus knows that soon he too will lay down his own life. He talked about it in chapter 10. Repeatedly how he's going to lay down his life as the good shepherd for the sheep, and he's going to reverse the curse that was brought to us by Adam's sin. And Paul's tour de force on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he writes, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. And right now I need us to focus on that first part. In Adam all die. We see the same thing when Paul speaks in Romans 5 as there are two great covenant heads, one of whom is Adam in whom is every living human being who is born ordinarily, and then there's Christ. And because the first Adam served as the head of the covenant for all of humanity, his sin didn't just affect him, it affected everybody, and it brought sin and death into the world. And when Jesus encounters the sin and death, he's angry. And he should be. I kind of wonder if, you know, they, they want to be vague when they translate this because they're uncomfortable with the anger of Jesus. Because the only other place we ever read about the anger of Jesus is when he's clearing out the temple. This is just as important as the clearing of the temple. Jesus hates sin. He hates death. And he hates all the misery that they produce. I didn't realize I did this, but I must have done this that day last week when I was getting ready to leave to go to the hospital, filled with my fear for my friend, filled with my anger, I must have slammed the door of my uh, desk because later I discovered I can't open the door. <laughs> What's wrong with the door? And I ended up breaking the door. I would not be the first one to be angry 
with death. My mind always kind of goes back. I used to watch MASH when I did my math homework when I was in high school. Okay, that says how old I am, because I was watching reruns of MASH, okay? <clears throat> and there's this one scene that comes to my mind when, when Hawkeye just can't let this one person go. And he screams a word that I can't say here, but don't let him win. That's Jesus. He's not going to let the evil one win. He's getting ready to tangle, getting ready to fight. But unlike Hulk Hogan, who's going to conquer by strength, Jesus is going to surrender himself to death, bearing our sin to rescue us. That's not how a champion usually does it. But that's how this champion does So hating the destruction that is wrought by sin and death, anger propels Jesus into action. The action here of raising Lazarus, but also the action of laying down his own life as the substitute. Secondly, I'm on time. Jesus responds to sin and death with sadness. It's time to get busy, so to speak. It's time for Jesus to wake Lazarus up. And so he asks where he has been laid. Where is the tomb? They invite him to come and see. And then we come to the shortest verse in the Scriptures. Two words. Jesus wept. But he didn't weep like Mary wept. He didn't weep like the mourners wept. John uses a different word to describe the crying of Jesus. This is one of those moments when you should regret the fact that you speak English. Think of snow for a minute. We only have a word, snow. Up in the Northeast, we would have to add modifiers, adjectives, to the word snow to describe the particular kind of snow that we had. There would be the light powdery snow, which was a joy to shovel. You you know, you boom, boom, you're done. You're out of there, right? But the heavy, wet snow, that was the backbreaker. That was You're taking ibuprofen before you go out there, you know? Because it's just so hard to move. It's like moving cement. Who would think that snow could be so heavy? Unless, of course, you grew up in a place like that. See, Colorado doesn't have that kind of snow, people. Okay. Eskimos have, that's why Eskimos have dozens of words for snow. So you know what kind of snow it actually is. And here, the Greek has multiple words for crying, so we know what kind of crying It is. His crying is not loud. It is not uncontrolled. It's not the wailing. It's more like the old commercial that some of you may remember about pollution. And the Native American looking out at what probably was the Hudson Bay and the tear rolling down the eye. 
That's the kind of crying. Not uncontrollable. But it's still a response of sadness to a situation, to circumstances. Now the Indian, the Native American, couldn't do anything about the condition of Hudson Bay. But Jesus can do something about this. But we notice one thing. We ought to notice one thing. That Jesus, who is the real man, who was the real man who was unaffected by sin himself personally, wept. Real men can cry. We struggle to do that. I do. But men can cry, and sometimes they should cry, depending on the circumstances. Jesus is recorded as weeping one other time, and that is when he wept over Jerusalem after the triumphal entry. We read in Luke 19, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus continues, unfortunately, to lay out the fact that they're going to receive the curses of the covenant for their rejection of God and the one whom he has sent, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is angry at sin and death, but he also weeps over sin and death. Love is like that. Love produces those complex, confused emotions at times. You see, love is angered by all that threatens the beloved, energizing the lover to act. Think of the Hulk, not Hulk Hogan. The green one. Okay. There are times when he's just raging. But then there's times when he rages due to love. Usually it happens when the one he loves is nearby. He can see and things aren't necessarily going well for the old Hulk because, you know, it's like 5,000 to 1 and everything. But he sees them endangering his beloved and he finds a new level of hulkiness to go to to try and rescue her. He becomes more enraged. But it's a rage that is driven by love, not hate. And the love of Jesus is driven, let me say, the anger of Jesus is driven by a love for his people. And the anger is there because something threatens his people. And he wants to act. But love is also saddened by the misery of the beloved, which energizes one to empathy. And so he's angry and he's weeping. Love does that. It's hard some days to watch the news. Today is one of those days. I don't want to watch the news. Because the death toll in Kenya 
keeps getting hotter. They killed our brothers and sisters. Love produces empathy for that. It could be us. Jesus is moved, in his humanity anyway, with the love for his people as they suffer. Because he loves them and because they love him. He's moved in the face of persecution. And so should we. Those tears of Jesus are a part of his humiliation. It's a humiliation that's speeding him like a roller coaster on the way to the cross. He doesn't want to avoid it. As the scriptures say in other places, he puts his face like steel towards Jerusalem to go where he must die, but he's on this mission, and this is part of the way, and these tears are a part of that whole process, that whole humiliation of Jesus. It is upon the cross that Jesus would cry so that he can wipe away our tears on the last day. Think of that promise from Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And the only reason those former things can pass away is because Jesus went into death. That's the only way. That's it. This promise in Revelation 21 is just essentially a reiteration of the promise in Isaiah 25. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And so as we think about what's going on here, we need to remember that by His disobedience, the first Adam gave to us sorrow and loss. When he ate of the forbidden fruit, everything changed for the worse. Sorrow and loss. Sin and misery. These minor notes just pounding along at us. There's no day that goes by when we don't taste the bitterness of sin and misery. Even our greatest joys are tainted with sin and misery. But by his obedience, the second Adam, Jesus, brings all his people, not just the absence of sorrow, but eternal joy without ceasing. As it talks about in the Psalms, our mourning will be changed into dancing. And it can't come soon enough some days. I don't dance well, but I want to dance with joy on that day. I'm tired of sorrow. I'm tired of saying goodbye. And that's really where Jesus is 
at the tomb of Lazarus. It's almost like he's saying, enough. And shortly, he will taste death for us. And so the disobedience of Adam brought sin and death into the world, and they touch us all. As the great lover of his people, as the great shepherd of the sheep, sin and death bring Jesus to tears and to anger. It was the anger that propelled him into a battle with sin and death in which he would bear our sin and taste death for us. But by doing so, he would swallow it so it would exist no more. We will not rage and cry forever, forever, but we anticipate the time when sin and death are swallowed up We anticipate the time that death and sin will touch us and those we love no more. But now, let us not be afraid to taste the tears and the anger at the sin and the death. Let's pray. Father, in a sense, Jesus invites us into the places that uh, sometimes we're afraid to go. We don't necessarily, at least some of us, don't necessarily want a, a Redeemer who displays those emotions because we're so uncomfortable with them. They frighten us when we experience them. But I thank you that there is one Jesus, who was not afraid, but saw them as an important part of what he was doing for our salvation. Part of his humiliation for our salvation. Father, help us to better understand. Uh, a Savior who was angry for us, a Savior who weeps for us. And that because of that, intercedes for us. In Jesus' name, amen.